alcohol and addiction is actually doing the exact opposite of connecting us, even if it doesn't seem that way. So it's disconnecting us from our true self. So we're not able to make true connections with other people. So if we need a substance to engage with another person or feel confident and comfortable and showing up as ourselves, that's really furthering that disconnection. Welcome to the Thoughts from the Couch podcast. I am your host, Justine Carino, licensed mental health counselor. I am here to lean into conversations about relationships, resilience, and recovery from life's challenges in order to support you on your journey to finding clarity in what you want for your future. We will talk about the things that no one else really wants to talk about in order to help you heal from past wounds and create a life that truly fulfills you. Please note, this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode from the Thoughts from the Couch podcast, where I dive into common topics that come up on my therapy couch, such as anxiety, depression, dysfunctional family relationships, what it's like to have a narcissistic parent, and so much more. Right now, you're listening to episode 37, and it is all about unhealthy relationships with alcohol. Currently in the U.S., we live in a culture in which binge drinking is normalized. We have been in this phase for quite a while now, actually. Not only did I experience this firsthand as a college student about 15 years ago or so, can't believe it's been that long, but even recently I've had clients tell me that they only had six to seven shots last night, so they didn't drink that much. Blacking out measures whether or not it was fun a fun night for some people. If you have ever questioned your alcohol use as a college student or 20-something-year-old, maybe you've wondered if your use was excessive or unhealthy, you may want to tune into this episode. I'm really excited about my guest today. I am speaking with Alyssa Pelletier, therapist in training who is currently studying marriage and family therapy. She is also a yoga facilitator, virtual assistant, and recovery coach based out of Connecticut. Alyssa is actually my beloved virtual assistant, and I cannot speak highly enough about her. She has been crucial into helping me with this podcast and so many other things with my business. So hello, Alyssa. Welcome. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your career goals? Hi, Justine. So first, thank you so much. It has been the greatest pleasure to support your work, and I've loved growing with you. So yeah, I'm currently in my final year of my graduate program, finishing up classes as well as completing my last internship. Um, After graduating from UConn in 2015, I moved to a super small town in Montana right outside of Glacier National Park and began working as a wilderness youth mentor for a therapeutic boarding school. And this hands down has been my favorite job to date because right out of college, who gets to go on 14 mile hikes, bikepacking trips, um, learn how to ski, live in the mountains, all while serving, supporting others through trauma and call it a job. So even the most challenging days were a complete dream, but unfortunately, almost a year after I moved out there, I came home to Connecticut for my brother's high school graduation, and I had a cousin overdose, fall into a coma, and unfortunately passed away a few days later. So this had a major major impact on my family. So a few months later, I made the decision to move back to New England, and I landed in New Hampshire, where I decided to complete my yoga teacher training. And this program actually helped my own healing. Um, So at the time, I really was struggling to find a therapist that understood me and what I was looking for. But being in this training was the exact healing that I needed, not only for my personal and familial trauma that I had gone through, but also to face my own addictions and witness how it was taking over my life, but also what a beautiful life I could live. 
if I chose to be kind of courageous enough to endure that healing journey. So I really attribute my own healing and recovery through these wilderness and yoga excursions. Um, and I'm really excited to kind of incorporate all of that as my future as a therapist. Thank you so much for sharing that. First of all, I it must have been so awesome living out in Montana. I've never been there. It looks absolutely gorgeous. And being out with nature in that way is so amazing for wellness and healing. So what an amazing experience. Um, so sorry to hear about the trauma and loss you had in your family. And I appreciate you sharing that as well. So that probably shaped a lot of your years in your 20s, you know, going through that. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely shaped a lot for me. And I think shaped my family relationships too. So so that can kind of segue um, into our topic today. Our conversation is about unhealthy relationships with alcohol in our 20s. I thought it could be helpful if you could first tell us a little bit about your experience as a recovery coach. So absolutely. So fast forward from 2017, 2018 to 2020, I actually lost another cousin to a fatal overdose, um, which again was really challenging and a big traumatic experience for my family. And among many other things, it made me reconnect to my why I kind of joined this field and started on this path. So at the time, I was actually working as a recovery support specialist for a family therapy program here in Connecticut. Um, And that agency sent all of the recovery sports specialists to get trained as recovery coaches through a program called CCAR here in Connecticut. So it was about a week and a half long, and it really, you know, dove into our why, um, but also the realities of anyone facing addiction, as well as supporting those who are faced with addiction. But I really, although this training was awesome, I felt like I needed something more. So I dove into a program called Yoga for 12 Step by Nikki Myers, and I recommend that program and that training to anyone who's interested um, in that field and kind of that healing journey. So after a few months um, later, after both of these trainings, I did leave that job just to do my graduate program, but I have been able to take on private coaching clients as well as coaching clients at my internship site, and it's really been awesome to incorporate not only the information and insights I gained from the CCAR training, but also from Yoga for 12 Step to really help people understand how alcohol plays a large unhealthy role within their life, within their family relationships, personal relationships, and kind of how different tendencies on the societal level, as well as intergenerational patterns within our family affects that. So this has definitely been the most challenging job, but also the most rewarding too. So not only do you have personal experience, unfortunately, with losing family members to substance abuse, you have extensive training in supporting people dealing with substance abuse disorders um, and family members struggling with that. And I've shared on my podcast that I'm an adult child of an alcoholic, so I kind of resonate with what you're sharing. And I've actually chosen not to work with substance abuse because I felt like it was too close to home for me. And there's a lot of, I feel like, transference for those listening. That's like a feeling that we get when we're with a client, but there's something triggering us in our personal lives that we want to keep separate from the client we're working with. So I've decided not to work in the substance abuse field, but it is a business that is booming and I honor and respect that this is one of your niches in the field. And it's amazing, amazing work that you do. So thank you for being out in the trenches in this way. Thank you for your kind words. Yeah, it definitely isn't the easiest most days. And like you said, there can be a lot of transference and counter transference going on. So 
that's why it's just as important to kind of have my own personal practices and really do the work on myself in order to be at the best for my clients too. Thank you for sharing that. So let's dive in. Alyssa, what is binge drinking? What is alcoholism? What is high functioning alcoholism? Let's give some language definition and differentiation to all of those. Absolutely, because those differentiations and definitions are so important for people to understand. So first, binge drinking. This is what we see on all college campuses. It's when someone consumes large amounts of alcohol in one sitting. So I know UConn, um, where I went to undergrad, we were famous for our nickel nights where you can get four drinks for a dollar. Um, and I'm sure there was other colleges that were similar too. Um, this only lasted for so long, but everyone would kind of pregame before, hang out following. And that was just on a Thursday night. So thinking about, you know, college campuses, what other bar nights are going on, what other events are going on, tailgating for football games and whatnot. So binge drinking, you can definitely associate more with that kind of atmosphere and culture. Alcoholism, definitely also still in the college campuses. Um, This is when you are unable to stop drinking and you develop a dependency where you feel as if you can't function without alcohol. So you may struggle to manage how often you drink how much you drink, you know, you're drinking every day, where binge drinking can happen just once or occasionally. Alcoholism is a daily and weekly struggle. So this kind of cultivates a physical dependency in our body, and it's not just occurring in social settings, but those struggling will also drink alone because they need to, their body is requiring it. So this can take a toll on all aspects of your life, you know, legal, um, your career, your relationships, really everything. And then high-functioning alcoholism is where I would confidently place a large portion of 20-something and postgraduates as well as college students, too. So this is where you can wake up in the morning, go to work, go to class, and you're still able to succeed by most standards, but your life still revolves around alcohol in a major capacity. You know, happy hours, weekend plans surrounding alcohol, the culture of colleges, um, and generally speaking, the culture of 20-somethings, you know, you're thinking like, oh, we're going to go to brunch on Sunday and have some drinks. But on Saturday night, we're also going to go to a bonfire and have some drinks. So, but you can still wake up Monday morning, you may have a hangover, but you're still able to make it to work or classes. Um, So perhaps you're not facing repercussions on all areas of your life, but it's definitely showing up in most. That's really helpful. Um, And I love how you distinguished those three terms. Um, One thing that comes to mind as you were sharing is you've probably met a lot of clients. I've met a lot of clients or people in my personal life too that really minimize the binge drinking and rationalize it at, you know, when they're in college or their twenties or even thirties. Right. Um, and say like, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and they really rationalize their use of the binge drinking on the weekends, or sometimes it's like a reward for a tough week or a tough exam or some kind of celebration. Um, and they try to distinguish themselves very differently. And it is different alcoholism and binge drinking, but binge drinking isn't healthy, right? And that's what we're going to go into as well today. Um, but there's a lot of minimizing and downplaying. And if you're someone that's successful every day, you're getting to class, you're getting A's, or you're killing it in your career, you're killing it in every area of your life. But you have a dependency on alcohol that can get really tricky because you haven't had any interruptions yet with your life. So it's hard for someone to recognize that their alcohol use could be unhealthy or heading down a bad path. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, to dive into that, it's kind of important and I'm sure we'll touch on this more, but what's the intention of it, right? A lot of alcoholism, binge drinking, high functioning alcoholism, it kind of forces disconnection from your body, from your mind, from kind of having that alignment. So really, even if you're only binge drinking once a month at college or as a 20 something year old, what's your intention of doing that? What is the purpose that's behind that driving motivation to kind of have that experience for yourself? I love that question. What is the intention behind it? What is the goal for engaging this type of behavior? Is it to disconnect? And why are you disconnecting? And what are you disconnecting from? I love that. So Alyssa, what are the societal norms in college and during our 20s that have been accepted and therefore reinforce these really unhealthy drinking patterns? Yeah, so societal norms are so interesting to me, and there's a lot here. I would love to do more research um, on this myself. But when we think about the history of how college is represented, particularly in the United States, um, what comes to mind is Greek life, party animal, the narrative of like drinking and partying comes to mind. And that's how we've sort of ritualized college, how we've symbolized it in our culture. So when we think about heading to college, one of the first things many people think about is the parties, the tailgates, joining Greek life, stuff like that. So everything surrounds alcohol in a major way, but why, right? So kind of going back to that disconnection piece, college in our 20s is all about connection and freedom. You know, when we think about some of the new freedoms we have as college age students, as well as 20-somethings, it's how we spend our money, how we spend our time, the things we weren't allowed to do in high school. Um, Furthermore, regardless of if you're off to college, staying home, out of college and heading into a different city, everything is new. You have new people, a new environment, and I want to emphasize what I'm about to say has to do with those who aren't already faced with addiction and alcoholism, because obviously that can emphasize this even more, but um, because a, a very real and unfortunate reality is that some people do go off to college already struggling with addiction and alcoholism. Um, But an emphasis I want to make is that this is all a spectrum, right? So no two people are alike, whether you fall into the classification of binge drinkers, alcoholics, high-functioning alcoholics, someone who struggles with drinking. Everyone's experience is completely different. So when we think about young people in college, we think about how we're all about to make new connections. We're not only making connections with new friends and new professors and a new community, but we're also making a new connection with ourselves. And for your listeners, you know, I'm sure you've dove into this in some other episodes before, but it's important to reference the psychosocial stages of development by Eric Erickson. So he theorized that from the adolescence or the age of 12 to young adulthood, we are faced with figuring out our identity as well as, you know, intimacy in our relationships. So these are the two focuses of these stages of development in our life. So when we think about leaving for college or leaving college for the real world, our life surrounds figuring out who we are and who we're connected with. So here we are at college or graduating college in a new place. Um, What's the easiest way to connect with someone? You know, you go to a bar, you tailgate at a game, go to a concert. Vineyards and breweries are really big, I know, in the New England area and I'm sure elsewhere. Um, Like I said earlier, like you go to a boozy brunch, right? So you may meet a prospective partner over a few drinks. You catch up with an old friend at a new brewery in town. It's often always inclusive of alcohol. And part of this is the term liquid courage, right? I know this used to be thrown around with my group of friends. It's kind of, you know, you have a drink so you can kind of power through and not deal with your social anxiety. But however, when we boil it down, 
alcohol and addiction is actually doing the exact opposite of connecting us, even if it doesn't seem that way. So it's disconnecting us from our true self. So we're not able to make true connections with other people. So if we need a substance to engage with another person or feel confident and comfortable and showing up as ourselves, that's really furthering that disconnection. So again, I think college in our 20s are a great time to figure out who we are, but there's also this level of desired certainty in this time frame. Um, a lot of people ha want to have their lives figured out and be kind of there and it, um, especially thanks to social media. So we have this sense of false identity that's not really connecting us to our truest selves and then alcohol is furthering that disconnection. So it's really just this terrible vicious cycle that's kind of been going on since high school. That was so um, well thought out and you are so wise. I love how you connected theory with behavior and Erickson's stages. That makes complete sense. We want to identify, we often identify with the group of people around us and during college. There's a lot of positive reinforcement for the partying and the binge drinking and yeah, it's fun, right? Like that's a big benefit. It can be fun. Um, until you cross that line and then you're making a lot more mistakes that kind of take the fun away. Also talking about, you made a comment that most people, when they get to college, they've already been drinking. And research shows that the earlier you start drinking or engaging in substance abuse, the more likely you're going to develop a problem later in life. In Westchester County, New York, where I um, currently have a practice, the average age of a first drink is 14. Um, so that's like freshman year of high school, but that's young, right? So sometimes you have four years of drinking in high school and then you have this sense of freedom in college. You're already pretty good at drinking. Now you bring it up to the next level and that's where a lot of problems can start. And I also think like there's a phase too when you graduate college um, and many people in New York come home and they get a career and they move into Manhattan. And then that's a whole other level of partying too, of like the Friday, Saturday nights, the Sunday brunches. It's a three-day extravaganza. So it kind of then translates because people are adapting from the freedom. You have responsibility, but not an intense amount of responsibility in college. But then you start a career in your 20s and there's a little bit more responsibility, but you still want to have that fun. So there's this transition period of trying to figure out like, can I function as well as I did as a career person partying this much? Or is it going to be harder to keep up with? There's a lot of things that change during the 20s too. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. And I think it, it all goes back to intention, right? What's your intention of these experiences? And how do you want to truly connect with yourself to one another? And how do you want to define and symbolize this period of your life? Because it could go one of two ways. And I think it's really unfortunate that we've normalized in our society that drinking in high school is okay and that, you know, college is all about, you know, getting wasted and binge drinking and all of that because there are so much more to all of these experiences that we are most of the time missing out on because of these other things. And I'm just going to throw in a little nugget too for listeners. The more you're abusing substances, the more likely you're going to also develop issues with your mental health, like depression and anxiety. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that. And I try to express that to them in our sessions, like alcohol is a depressant. So in the beginning, it's a lot of fun, right? Like that pregame moment and the vibe and you're getting hyped up and you're having a great time. But then you cross over that threshold 
Um, and then it's a depressant. And that's where you see people rage out. You see people crying. You see people being totally irrational, but highly emotional. So literally while drunk, you start to have these symptoms pop up, but then the next day you're withdrawing. And that's when a lot of people have the anxiety hangover. Like they're hungover from the night before, but then their heart's racing, they're nauseous, they're sweating, you know, physically from the alcohol withdrawal, but there's also that anxiety that comes on. And also the anxiety of like, what did I do last night? What did I say? I have to deal with my decisions today. Then it sets them up for like the next cycle of like, okay, what other substance am I going to use to help with this? You know, a lot of people smoke marijuana to help the hangover. So then they smoke the weed the next morning. Um, And then they're getting ready for the next night to like forget about the night before if it didn't go so well or try and relive it if it did go well. So it's a whole, it makes you more susceptible to mental health issues too. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for saying that and kind of breaking that down because alcohol is a poison. When you think about it, that's why they say people get alcohol poisoning when they drink too much. So really what we're doing to our bodies and our minds is poisoning it. And then just like you said, there's a cycle of let's smoke weed the next day or, you know, for some people even take other substances to keep us awake even longer to keep drinking or do it again the next day. And it's just really this vicious cycle of poisoning our body, mind, and spirit on so many different levels. Even with, you know, being hungover, I remember going to the diners in college or getting just greasy food, and that's not going to help with depression and anxiety, as we all know. So it's really just amplifying it every time we choose to kind of go through that experience again and again. And you know, some other parts of the cycle like in your 20s, like if you land that great job and that great career and maybe you're out partying in the city on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and then you're so hungover, like you said, other substances get involved, then comes the cocaine to help you focus at your big career the next day. And we see that a lot um, in Manhattan in big jobs. So there's that whole other cycle of substance abuse that comes in. I am so excited to announce that I am creating an online course that's going to help you learn simple ways to manage your anxiety on a daily basis. I absolutely love providing one-to-one psychotherapy, but unfortunately, I can't reach everybody. So I created a tool that's going to give you more access to anxiety support. If you want to be one of the first to know when this course launches, head to my show notes and sign up for my email list or Download my freebie on perfectionism or how to create a personal wellness routine and you will be added to the wait list. I hope to see you there. Okay, so how do you think our family and people that raised us can play a role in making us vulnerable to normalizing abusive behaviors with alcohol? Yes. So this is a big one because people to this day still have very different views on the connection between family history, intergenerational patterns, and addiction. So I'm going to butcher his name a little bit, but Gabor Mate is a huge role model for me in that. So because he kind of always asks this question, it's not why the addiction, but why the pain, right? And that pain doesn't necessarily have to be traced back to your history. It could be traced back to your parents' history or their parents' history. You know, what I love to do with any of my clients is kind of do a genogram, which is a family tree. And we kind of look at, you know, where else in your family tree is there addiction or alcoholism or trauma of any kind, whether, you know, your grandpa fought in a war or someone, um, 
faced famine or whatever it may be. And I think that's just a big piece to kind of look at because, you know, all of my clients who are faced with alcoholism or addiction and about 90% of my therapy clients who suffer with anxiety and depression have a family history of alcoholism or addiction. So this is absolutely an intergenerational issue. So deepening this even more, um, we can also look at kind of boundaries and alcohol use. So this is different everywhere, but there are always families who kind of allow their children to drink alcohol at younger ages, um, whether it's a glass of wine at a holiday dinner or they're allowing them to binge drink with a family at 16. And again, every family is different. The reason behind that is different. I know, you know, culturally, some Italians will say, hey, let's have a glass of wine at dinner, um, you know, but any anything can be really impactful on anyone's life. Um, and it does change from person to person. So you can have someone whose parents allow them to drink starting at the age of 12 and then goes on never drinking again after they're out of the house or someone can suffer from severe alcoholism. So the real key is to having those appropriate boundaries around your kids and young adults drinking. And again, focusing on that intentionality having conversations surrounding drinking and alcohol and having it come from a place of compassion and respect rather than discipline and right versus wrong. Um, that can go a long way because I think to kind of monkey see monkey do. So if they see you kind of drinking and getting drunk, you know, but then you're turning around and disciplining them and saying, Hey, you can't drink. You're only 12, 14 years old, you know, kind of deepen that conversation a little bit, tell them kind of why it is that those boundaries are in place. And I know that you've kind of talked on your podcast about having a family member and loved one faced with alcoholism and addiction. Um, so I'm sure it's in there, but that enabling versus helping and accommodating, right? So, you know, I came from a family of very heavy drinkers. And, you know, as far back as I can remember, that's how my extended family and their friends kind of connected. So for me, there wasn't a family function without alcohol um, and not just light beer either. You know, my family is Irish and French Canadian, so that's kind of in our culture and in our blood. Um, so my nuclear family would always be hosting kind of the picnics, pool parties, holiday parties. And one of the biggest childhood memories that I have is my aunt would make cello shots and the green ones were always for the kids. So from a very young age, I attributed jello in small cups with alcohol and a feeling of being included and connecting, right? So again, I had this own version of my jello shot. I felt included. And, you know, this was part of my family's culture, but no one ever really had that conversation with me about, you know, drinking heavily is not necessarily a good thing. And these are the effects that it can have on you. And these are the concerns that we have on you. So, you know, it took my own healing and my own motivation to make those changes and uncover that a little bit. But really opening communication, having honest conversations, setting appropriate boundaries and not coming from a place of, you know, discipline and right versus wrong, but, you know, really uncovering why it is, you know, you're drinking from a young age, why it is your parents allowed you to drink from a young age as a parent, why are you allowing your kids to drink from a young age and, you know, really kind of opening that up a bit and seeing how you can create healthier patterns and roles and relationships within your family. That is so useful. And I also love how you're tying it to culture. So many cultural celebrations include alcohol of some kind. I love that you share that about the jello shots. That makes complete sense. Um, you felt included. There was your version of it, um, but it wasn't really talked about. But yeah, there's religious celebrations, cultural celebrations, holidays, events where alcohol is included. And 
we think that it's all like in moderation and appropriately used, but not all families follow suit with that. So a lot of children and teenagers are exposed to this at a young age, but aren't hearing the rest of the story of like, we're adults, we can moderate our use, and this is what appropriate use looks like, and this is what excessive binge drinking use looks like, this is what alcoholism is. And those are all important conversations to have that aren't really had so often. Especially if you come from a family where there's heavy drinking, they probably normalize and rationalize the heavy drinking, right? And that speaks to intergenerational patterns. Like if your dad or mom's a drinker, most likely their parents were drinkers, most likely their parents are drinkers. So what they saw in their own household was normalized. So you never start to question it because you're like, this is normal. This is what I grew up around. Um, And you don't really think to break the cycle because it kind of sets up this pattern that just gets passed down subconsciously. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely couldn't agree more. And I think too that, you know, again, with adults, with grown adults, your brain is fully functioning. It's fully formed, right? But when you are teenagers, even when you're early in your 20s, your brain isn't fully formed yet. So we're taking a lot of risks in our experiences and the choices that we make just because that's how our brain is functioning at the time. So, you know, when we see older adults in our family drinking heavily or even like culturally culturally drinking at family functions and events, you know, they're able to moderate a little bit more effectively and they're they're able to be more intentional about their use where, you know, we might not be able to view it that way and you know, younger individuals might take more risks in how they use alcohol and when they use alcohol and where they use it. So that's why, again, it's really important to kind of have those conversations, especially when you're going to incorporate it in religious ceremonies or, you know, you know, weddings are a big one, you know, anything like that. Having that conversation with your kids, you know, this is why and break it down for them and kind of be open about, you know, your use and how you choose to moderate and use it effectively and intentionally. Yes, I think that is all so important to bring up. And at the end of the day, it's like just education and conversations, right? And a lot of us didn't have those conversations in our homes. And I bet a lot of listeners that are resonating with this can agree they didn't have conversations around alcohol in their homes either. So how do you think alcohol played a role with how people coped with the pandemic. There were so many jokes about liquor stores staying open in New York during our shutdown in 2020 um, when everything else was closed, like gas stations, grocery stores, and liquor stores were open. What do you think about that? So as if the pandemic wasn't a tragedy enough, um, you know, same thing here. And what I heard in Connecticut is that you know, and maybe many states too, they kept package stores or liquor stores open so that alcoholics wouldn't take up spots in the emergency room from detoxing. However, a dear friend kind of pointed out something pertinent to me um, is that there's still going to be people over drinking. There's still going to be accidents happening. So that's not necessarily helping in any way. Um, What really needs to happen is more resources for affordable rehabs, detox centers, programs to support those suffering, and mental health in general. Because yes, so many people who didn't have an unhealthy relationship to alcohol prior are now drinking more heavily because we're all feeling kind of that anxiety and depression due to the pandemic. 
So oftentimes we use alcohol and other substances to escape our current reality. So you drink in order to relieve yourself of the pain and isolation you're facing. And we witnessed that on a global scale the past few years. And even though the world is slowly getting back to normal, those behaviors aren't going away. So we're still kind of dealing with that repercussion of the pandemic and of you know states keeping that open, um, but also not helping people um, you know with mental health help as well as you know help with addictions and stuff like that. Wow, I had no idea that correlation to keeping the liquor stores open with needing space in the emergency rooms. Wow, had no idea. And that actually makes a lot of sense. And that's really, really sad. Um, Yeah, I can imagine, like, I'm also thinking during the shutdown, people lost their jobs, people couldn't work, people didn't know what to do with themselves. Parents were trying to work and have their kids be educated. Like there were so many crazy circumstances where people coped with alcohol, people coped with their boredom with alcohol, their anxiety, their depression. It was like a really unhealthy way of dealing with all the emotions going on at the time. But like you said, like those patterns developed then are are still at play now. And, you know, alcohol is a way of coping for people, coping with some kind of pain, um, as you said before. Yeah, that is really, really interesting. So I'm curious, do you have any tips to help someone recognize that they may be engaging in unhealthy drinking patterns? Maybe they're kind of on the cusp and they're like, I'm curious if what I'm doing is unhealthy. Yes. So it definitely begins with some deep and authentic self-reflection. It's absolutely necessary for you to kind of figure out, you know, the nature of your unhealthy drinking patterns. And even if you're not ready to dub it unhealthy, but just your drinking patterns in general. So like we talked about, what is the symbolism and the role that drinking and alcohol takes in your life? What is the meaning you attribute to it? A lot of work that coaches and therapists do is how do clients make meaning of aspects within their lives? So taking a look at your life, your rituals and routines around drinking and ask yourself, is it controlling your schedule? Is drinking on your mind more often than not? Do you become a different person? Is your ability to connect with others based on drinking? Can you connect with your community in non-alcoholic ways? You know, what's the balance there? Are you able to go do things with friends or prospective partners without drinking? Do your emotions and stress drive your drinking? If you're unable to tell your friends and family you aren't going to drink for one night, you know, really taking a look at that because I think... For me personally, that was kind of a big wake-up call for me when I struggled to tell friends and family, you know, I'm taking three months off to not drink anymore. It was really challenging to stand up and say, you know, this is my reality and I'm going to kind of take the necessary steps that I need to make myself healthier. Um, Another big question, are you drinking alone? Because that kind of really means that you may not be able to sit with yourself and you may not be able to connect with yourself sober. Um, If you woke up hungover or if you're blacked out, I want to emphasize this as well. So again, a relationship to alcohol falls on a spectrum, but regardless of where you are, if you're waking up with a hangover, that's not a healthy relationship to alcohol. Like I said earlier, you know, alcohol is a poison and this means that you drink to the point of poisoning your body. So I really like to explore this because I think another societal norm in college is, you know, who's most hungover or who blocked out the night before? I remember there was a term kind of floating around at my college of like browned out. I don't even know what it means, but or I didn't know what it meant at that point either. Um, But, you know, another term to kind of live up to. 
you know, and then, like we said earlier too, going out to eat greasy food at the diner the next morning to cure the hangover. Um, but what this does is push our bodies into a biological state that is literally killing our body, mind, and spirit. So really when you look at kind of the balance of your life, um, just seeing what you can do to kind of enhance everything else and really even if you're not ready to give it up completely for a month, a week, or a day, you know, how can you moderate yourself a little bit more? Because I don't necessarily think that everyone needs to be completely sober. You know, again, this is everyone's individual journey. It's going to look differently for everyone. But can you have just one drink? And what is the intention behind just that one drink? Like, are you going to a wedding and you don't want to miss out on the champagne toast? Sure. But are you then going to spiral into having five, six, seven drinks? So really kind of looking at your own patterns um, for exactly what they are and being realistic with yourself is the start to kind of this whole entire journey. These are all really good tips to help someone recognize if they have a problem, an issue, unhealthy drinking pattern. I'm also thinking we can add to that list, um, like asking, you you mentioned emotions, is the only time you're feeling relaxed when you're drinking? Is the only time you're feeling happy when you're drinking? When are you reaching for the drink? Is it a, to de-stress? So if you find only positive emotion when drinking, I feel like that's telling. What do you think? Absolutely. And I think a lot of people aren't necessarily realistic with themselves when asked that questions initially, because they'll say, no, I can be happy like doing X, Y, and Z. But that's why it's so important to kind of build your emotional awareness and your emotional intelligence of your kind of true cognitions and true mindsets, because you got to be real with yourself, right? You can't keep going down this path. So uncovering and connecting to yourself in other ways to be able to say, yeah, the only time I am drinking is when I'm like, is to be happy and is to relieve my stress and to experience some sense of joy in my life. Um, Because I think everything can get really messy in people's minds, especially coming out of college, because it is so normalized. So it's kind of like, oh, but this is how everyone lives. This is everyone's life, you know? Why would I not drink? Why would I not drink to be happy? So it's important to kind of take yourself out of that scenario in those situations and really take that third person reflection on your own life and, you know, emotions and tendencies. Yeah. And I think also that's why it's so scary for people to stop drinking because for a lot of people, the only time they do feel good about themselves for a little bit is when they're drunk. Um, or using any other substance, but we're talking about alcohol. So that's scary to give up the thing, the only thing that might be making you feel good um, because they're afraid, like, without this, who will I be? How will I feel? Will I be able to tolerate myself and all of my emotions? And that's why it's really hard for people to make any changes. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And kind of, again, like redefining who you are, right? So kind of to share more personal information. But when I returned back to Connecticut after living in New Hampshire, that's when I chose to stop drinking for a while. And, you know, not only was I coming back to a lot of friends that I hadn't seen in quite some time, but I was a new person, right? So it it was really hard to kind of step forward as someone who didn't, isn't drinking as much as I used to while being this new person after living in these different places, But, you know, things still seem the same. Um, So it's really important to recognize, too, that goes back to boundaries and, like, your relationships. Because if your friendships can't be anything else outside of alcohol, if your friends can't show up 
like and respect you and saying like, you know, I'm only going to have one drink tonight or I'm not going to drink at all for a couple of months, then that's a reflection on that friendship. That's not necessarily a reflection on you and who you are as a person. So you really need to choose the best version of yourself every day. And you really need to choose, you know, I'm giving myself a much better life, a much more authentic and connected life over kind of this foggy gray lifestyle of like this vicious cycle of drinking just to kind of cope and connect and um, deal with any stressors in everyday life. I'm excited to share with you another amazing podcast that also goes there with awkward and uncomfortable conversations. It's called The Third Place with Mary Allard and David Gaines. These two come together to have awkward conversations in a safe space. They acknowledge that we've forgotten how to talk to each other. Life has become polarized. This whole, you're either with me or against me approach. On their podcast, they embrace the complexity of the human experience through covering topics that span from insecurity to anger to grief, race, gender gaps, and addiction. The Third Place podcast helps us to restore the art of dialogue through encouraging curiosity, welcoming differences, and embracing empathy. Check it out. I really feel like their work on their show is an extension of the work we do here together on Thoughts from the Couch and just such a valuable addition to your podcast go-tos. So how do you think someone can start to practice healthy choices around alcohol going forward? Maybe they're starting to recognize that their current relationship with alcohol is unhealthy and they want to be better. What do you suggest they start with? Yeah, so there are quite a few ways to kind of readjust um, your relationship to alcohol. And I want to emphasize that this is also a spectrum. And what I share here is obviously not an exhaustive list. Everyone's journey is so different um, and individualized. And as a coach, I really try to emphasize this part and support you in finding what works best for you. So what are the things that bring you joy outside of alcohol? And, you know, maybe that's a hard one, but thinking back to when you weren't drinking as much, did you love to bike? Did you love to paint? You know, really trying to reconnect with those things. What is feeling fully aligned as a human feel like? Um, there's a pretty common activity that we use as recovery coaches um, and as therapists, I know, use this as well. It's called the balance wheel. So you're taking a look at all areas of your life and seeing how balanced they are. So what are the areas that are kind of on a scale of one to 10 towards like one? And what are the areas that are more at a 10? And, you know, for a lot of people with unhealthy relationships to alcohol, that'll be at a 10 where everything else will kind of float lower. So this can actually be found by a quick Google search if you would like to kind of explore that. Um, But I really focus on overall well-being. So, you know, is movement a part of your everyday? Because again, you know, alcohol really takes effect on you physically, your body and your mind. So also, how are you taking care of your mind um, and mental health? You know, getting yourself to see a therapist or a coach and making sure that you incorporate some sort of exercise, whether it's just a walk every day. Um, Maybe you're a runner and want to get back into running. Um, Also, how can you connect to others while being sober? So what are ways that you can start making, you know, new community and new friendships, whether that may look like an AA meeting or an NA meeting or, you know, like I said, Yoga for 12 Step is a wonderful resource that I definitely recommend to people because, even in AA meetings, you don't have to share if you don't want to, right? You can just go and observe and kind of be present and be there just to see what it's like. Um, but these are really great great ways to connect with people who have similar struggles. Um, and Yoga for 12 Step is combined with a physical practice too. So you're kind of not only tending to your mind, but also your body 
while in the presence of others connecting as well. Um, you know, figuring out, I know women's circles are becoming more popular, at least in this area, you know, finding ways that maybe you're not ready to connect over not wanting to drink or changing your drinking patterns, but what other groups and community organizations can you be a part of that will deepen those connections and give you a community that is not based around kind of drinking. I also want to mention something very important. I kind of already emphasized that recovery and relationships to alcohol are on a spectrum, right? So therefore your healing relationship with alcohol will be too. So many people would benefit from not drinking, but that doesn't mean it has to be forever, right? So like I mentioned, I stopped drinking for a couple of months um, and then I was able to kind of come back to moderation. You know, some people were able to just do moderation um, and find more intentionality with it. Some people may be able to give it up cold turkey and never go back to it. So everyone's healing journey is different, but really figuring out kind of how do you rebalance your life to kind of have all areas of your life in a good and intentional and connected way, um, connecting back to yourself and what matters most to you, what your values are um, and what your goals are for your life outside of that. So um, two, power, two powerful quotes that I want to share by one of my teachers, Nikki Myers, is, you know, one, we cannot heal what we do not acknowledge, right? So unless we're ready to acknowledge, you know, we have this unhealthy relationship, we're not ready to heal it. So really that self-reflection piece has to come first. And then the other quote is, I will never have a healthy yes if I don't have a solid no. So again, the boundaries with other people in your life, with your friends, you know, and your family saying, hey, I'm not drinking right now, or hey, I'm only going to have one drink, um, but also with yourself too, right? So if you can't say no to yourself, if you can't say, you know, I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to indulge in this right now, you're not going to have a healthy yes for the other areas of your life. So those are really um, powerful ones that I kind of keep around with me and share with my clients. I absolutely love those quotes. Those are wonderful and so empowering. I hope anyone listening can kind of take those with them today. And also, I think what you're saying is you don't have to do this alone. There are so many support systems out there for other people that might be questioning their own boundaries with alcohol use. And it's hard to do it alone. And research shows that you are more successful if you don't do it alone, if you do it with a therapist, a coach, or an AA group, or any other support group out there, you're more likely to be successful with your goal of cutting back or stopping or whatever you think it is you need to be more balanced. I love that. Alyssa, this was so incredible um, hearing you talk about this. I feel like I learned a lot from you. I know my listeners are learning a lot by listening to this. How can people find you? So I'm most active on Instagram, although my posts may not be as frequent um, these days as I'm finishing up my grad program, but I check my um, DMs daily and I kind of answer questions there. My website is alyssaraytherapy.com and you can always email me, um, which is alyssa at alyssaraytherapy.com. So I encourage anyone listening who thinks they may want to explore their relationship with alcohol to send me a message, shoot me an email. You know, I offer free consult calls, so I'd love to kind of deepen everyone's connections to their true self and help your community kind of live and lead ha happier and healthier lives. Awesome. I will make sure we include your information in the show notes. Have a wonderful day, Alyssa. Thanks so much for having me on, Justine. I hope you guys enjoyed my episode with Alyssa. She is such an amazing person, such a talented clinician, and so essential to my business. I am so lucky to have her as a virtual assistant. But in our conversation, 
she really gets you thinking about what you might have been normalizing around your drinking patterns, maybe what you've been rationalizing because of the family you grew up in or what practices are rationalized and normalized in your culture that maybe you have been misinterpreting. So she gets you reflecting on your own drinking patterns. And if you're someone that's been listening to this and now you've had a realization that maybe your patterns are unhealthy in your relationship with alcohol or other substances is unhealthy, There are people out there that can help you. You do not have to go through changes alone. There are so many resources and systems out there that can walk you through making a change in your life around this. So if you enjoyed this episode, you may also enjoy episode number seven. It's my solo episode titled, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. And in there, I talk about my father's alcoholism, his own childhood trauma, how it may have influenced his own substance abuse, and what it was like for me growing up with a father that was um, abusing alcohol. So once again, I am so thankful for you tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, please share these episodes, rate them, review them, so I can get this content out in the world and help people on their mental health journey. I hope you enjoyed listening to the information shared during this episode. Please consider subscribing so you can stay updated when new episodes are released. And don't forget to check out the podcast show notes to find any resources that were mentioned in today's conversation. Thank you for listening and enjoy all the moments your day has to offer you.